There's a lot of technology out there that people will bring in and then they get, they're basically done in a half-assed manner and it's a huge cost to the institution. It rubs the CEOs of these different hospitals the wrong way when something is introduced and not carried through the entire way. So, you know, that's where I feel there's a little window for us to step in and you know, help the adoption of these practices and products in a way that's mutually beneficial to everybody. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alap Shah. One thing that really jumped out to me about Alap was his entrepreneurial spirit and how he's uh, exercised that in the field of anesthesia specifically. So he started a few business. He has served as a consultant for practitioners to help them make their practices more efficient. And he's someone who's really carved his own path as an anesthesiologist with some unusual non-medical training, which he's found to be really helpful in his business endeavors. So if you're interested in entrepreneurship in anesthesia, or maybe you're just looking to use your medical degree to earn some income on the side, you definitely won't want to miss this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce to you our guest this week, Dr. Alap Shah. Alap is a consultant, processes optimizer, entrepreneur, and musician, in addition to being a boarded anesthesiologist in both general and pediatric anesthesiology. I first found some of Alap's work on KevinMD.com, where he wrote a column there, and eventually I became familiar with a handful of his other pursuits, both personal and professional, which I'm excited to explore with him today to get some insights into the life of an entrepreneurial anesthesiologist. Thanks a lot for being here, Alap. Of course, and thank you, Justin, for having me here today. Uh, so I saw on your CV to start out that you were born in Syracuse, New York, and that you now reside in West Hollywood, California. So personally, having been to both of those places, mm-hmm. I know that there are a few more disparate <laughs> locales. Uh, I'm curious, you know, growing up, was, did you always have a vision of getting to the West Coast, or did that just kind of unfold over time? You're absolutely right. Since the age of eight, I've always had my sights set on California. I think it was just personal preference. I've lived in every state that has cold weather, that has a record of snow, whether it's upstate New York or Michigan. I thought I was, okay, well, maybe it's time for a change of scenery. I had that at you know age eight. Mm-hmm. Age 18 came along, and I was like, okay, I still need to get out of here. Um, <laughs> age 28 came along. I'm like, okay, well, I'm a physician, still, still making my way out there. Yeah. Um, so I think at the right age of 831, I was able to make my way out to Los Angeles. And, you know, although there are obviously qualms about, you know, you're living in a city with so much traffic, um, it's, it, it is exactly kind of what I, what I expected it to be. And I'm really happy. I guess I pride myself in, you know, making my way out here, for, especially for someone who's not originally from California. And that's pretty difficult, especially in the medical world. Cool. Um, so I'd love to, you're a man of, of many interests and proficiencies. And I'd love to, why don't you just give us a couple minutes and unpack all of your different endeavors, both professionally and personally, and, and kind of give a, a 30,000 foot flyover of your life for our listeners. Sure. As you mentioned, you know, my path has been any, anything but a straight line. Professionally, my interest in medicine actually grew out of the interest in the human brain when I was in high school. It was a big reason why I chose my major, a neuroscience major, when I went to college. However, sort of even back then, I had always had you know side interests. Always felt the need to complement you know my ambitions in medicine or what was traditionally thought to basically be a stable career in medicine. And even back then, and I, I had, um, I was actually DJ back then, um, and had a lot of interest, just sort of in having a side business where I could go, play some music, and you know, make everybody happy. Yeah. And, and I even remember applying to the uh, Wharton Bachelor's Program mm. to actually be in business. Mm. And I remember writing about wanting to have a music business and run that, and what my vision was. And mm. obviously, I had no idea what running a business was like back then it's not like i'm much better off today but i remember i always had side interest in business or entrepreneurial um you know side interest aside from medicine 
you know, I, it was something that I learned to sort of keep somewhat compressed during my training, but I always continued to play the piano, the cello, and engage in some of my other musical interests on the side when able. Throughout my career, I, uh, throughout my training rather, you know, again, it's something that I kept on the side. And when I went into medical school, that was a whole nother sort of pivot point where I didn't have to make a decision about my specialty. And even that decision opened up my eyes into all the other things and skill sets that I could hone and develop as a clinical anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, over the past 10 years, you know, in addition to my side interests, I took it on myself with the help of my residency program, with the help of my fellowship program, to engage in research programs or research projects rather, and quality improvement projects to really help studies how things like statistics, outcomes-based research, um, collaborative projects with people in all sorts of specialties outside of even medicine, mm -hmm. how we can all work together towards one unified vision of improving patient care. So today, flashing forward, you know, I still have all of these varied side interests. I still I like being a physician, taking care of patients in a wide variety of settings. I like being able to apply my knowledge from working in other fields in and out of medicine to making my specialty and my personal care for my patients better. I still, you know, enjoy music, not just for myself, but allowing it to help enhance recovery, enhance our workflow and enhance morale hmm. for all of us working long hours in the operating room. And so that's, with all that being said, you know, I feel like wrapping all of that under one umbrella is kind of my life and my life story and the way I envision sort of my career going on, everything hand in hand in hand. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm curious, did you choose anesthesia with an eye towards self-employment and towards sort of this multidisciplinary approach to medicine and to life, or, or did that kind of open up to you afterwards, after you'd made that decision? It was somewhat afterwards. In medicine, in medical school rather, um, you know, I trained during a time where people were still very, you know, traditionally focused on having, or you know, going through a residency program immediately after. Um, and I still think that's very important. You know, we spend a lot of money, we go through this training, so that we, this is really the only way we can get, you know, clinically certified. Mm -hmm. And we see really all, this is the only time we get our clinical training. Okay. And so I think it's really important for you know, people to go and learn the skills of being a doctor. I think it's very important. That's what set ourselves as being different from another profession, where we actually have to go and hone our skills, the combination of our critical thinking and procedural skills. Mm -hmm. So I still think it's very important to do that. However, my eyes were really set on basically doing something different, not just simply going and providing anesthesia in a seven to three or nine to five model, but really, you know, in a way that I'm continuously engaging and pushing the field forward in my own eyes and really pushing myself to learn about the business side of medicine, which I agree with you is not taught in medical school at all. Mm -hmm. So although we receive a lot of clinical training, we don't receive any training about, you know, insurance companies, the issues with dealing commercially, and even within an academic setting, the issues with billing, why it's important to have a separate billing company who looks at your procedural and diagnosis codes, and the importance of having a company such that you don't have, you know, issues with double billing practices, surprise billing, but even more so about, you know, the world of how, you know, Physicians and the billing companies negotiate with each other, how billing companies and patient insurance companies negotiate with each other, mm -hmm. and how that plays into a group practice where then they make all that simplified for you and they pay you out at a certain unit value, a certain mm -hmm. salary. And so, you know, coming into medicine, everyone just thinks that they're blindly handed a paycheck. And we, for better or worse, are taught to sort of keep ourselves blinded or in the dark about, you know, where this money is actually coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but in California, it's, we all, especially in procedural heavy specialties like anesthesia, surgery, we are encouraged, if not required, to form individual corporations for both tax and liability purposes. Mm -hmm. 
And just by doing that, we start learning about what the difference of being an independent physician or being your own corporation where you pay yourself and is like and how that's different from a traditional salary position or even a traditional position in a university setting where, again, you have your W-2, you have a paycheck, yeah. you even have benefits. But then, again, you don't see the you know what happens behind closed doors, right. your patients' insurance companies and the negotiation and discussion that are had right. at a much higher level. Right. I feel like everyone, even if you go into academic medicine, you should know about that. Yes, totally agree. And that is why this podcast exists, to break down this huge informational asymmetry that exists between uh, the people in the, you know, the, the top of the insurance building <laughs> and the people with the boots on the ground and the ORs. So, so in that context, um, briefly maybe describe your current clinical practice and your current consulting practice. And, and then I want to dive into what it means to be a self-employed physician. Exactly. So my, actually under how being a self-employed physician, I allow myself both my clinical activities as well as time for consulting activities. But really everything is a contracted opportunity or a gig. And that's how I collect. And then I pay myself a salary out of you know, everything that I get from all of my clinical and consulting gigs. That being said, it does allow me the, a little bit of flexibility in terms of scheduling what I do on any given day. And I usually do it week to week. For example, Mondays and Wednesdays, I tend to work at some of the community non-teaching hospitals in the East Los Angeles area, uh, where I provide both OR, clinical OR services for general surgery and pediatric surgeries. This includes general surgery, abdominal surgeries, urology, um, outpatient procedures such as gastroenterology, colonoscopies, endoscopies. Um, and Wednesdays and even some Fridays, we do, um, I do OB anesthesia. Okay. So I'm in a labor and delivery unit, um, and we do procedures to help um, laboring females um, with their pain um, as they're you know, about to have the most wonderful thing happen to them in life and have a baby. On um, other days, on Tuesday specifically, I have a mobile anesthesia unit, and I actually go out in the community, even more so in the rural areas, to dental offices, hmm. and we provide general anesthesia for children, many with special needs, who need full dental restorations, a lot of tooth extractions, procedures that you know you can't be done, you know, under you know a simple local anesthetic or even nitrous oxide. Hmm. Um, and specific with pediatric patients, which allows me to use my fellowship in pediatrics. On Thursdays and Fridays, it's usually a mix of either OR services, you know, maybe uh, some consulting, which I'll get back into a second here, and um, some work at surgery centers where I provide, again, more clinical services, but in a very outpatient setting and through my billing group directly, which, again, bills in a different way. And so the consulting is, consulting is a very broad term. I usually give myself Thursdays and Fridays some time for that. Consulting can range anywhere from writing and public speaking, uh, where you actually go out uh, and you write you know, certain blog articles, very similar to the one that you saw in Kevin MD. Mm -hmm. You know, writing blog articles is a good way for companies and physicians alike to increase their SEO and really increase the freshness to whatever they're trying to do for both their personal and professional websites. Consulting also includes things like sitting down with the C-suite people or you know, leaders, nursing managers, surgery centers, or hospitals alike, and seeing how we can improve care, whether it's increasing the efficiency or productivity of the physicians, improving the scheduling, in other words, increasing, again, the efficiency, mm -hmm. decreasing waste, improving um, the ordering of products, improving JCO site readiness. JCO stands for the Joint Commission mm -hmm. of Accredited Health Organizations, basically decreasing the fines levied against certain you know, centers, uh, basically because they're up to par with certain safety guidelines or clinical guidelines. Mm -hmm. It also involves um, working with device companies or in, or in industry, mm -hmm. um, as people try to connect with the healthcare arenas and both academics and to help vet their products 
um, and see which things are cost effective and can be incorporated in you know a hospital uh, basically a hospital almost imagine like an assembly line what they're going to you know, bring in and what they're going to introduce into their clinical workflow and that's a big issue especially in this day and age where you know there's lots of buzzwords of innovation and medicine technology but there's a very poor means rather of incorporating them into the workflows of huge institutions mm -hmm. in a way that's cost effective, in a way that everyone can adopt it without it just getting dropped. And that's that's a huge issue because there's a lot of technology out there that people will bring in and then it, they get, they're basically done in a half-assed manner and it's huge cost to the institution. It rubs the CEOs of these different hospitals the wrong way when something is introduced and not carried through the entire way. And so, you know, that's where I feel there's a little window for us to step in and you know, help the adoption of these pro practices and products in a way that's mutually beneficial to everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know that in that vein uh, that you have some specialized training, namely Lean, L-E-A-N, and Six Sigma, which were a couple buzzwords that from my undergrad days in managerial accounting was hearkening me back to Villanova. And uh, these are certifications more commonly associated with production, manufacturing, uh, and, and quality in that vein. I, I hadn't actually heard of it before in the medical world. I don't know. Is that a is that a common thing? Maybe talk a little bit about how you came to acquire those and why you had an interest there. So it's not a common thing, and I can tell you that because is one of my research, uh, one of our research papers that our institution, University of Washington, produced. We looked at um, the research studies uh, which used Lean and Six Sigma, which is another traditional. Um, quality improvement process improvement curriculum. Um, and you're right, these things uh, were actually born out of engineering, manufacturing, lean enterprise, out of very, very different systems. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when at the time of us doing these projects, we realized that there were only maybe 60 or 70 research papers that actually talked about lean or six sigma practices in the healthcare arena. This is especially important because of number one, most importantly, uh, reimbursement practices, regardless of insurance type or surgery or procedure type, or wh whatever reason the patient in the hospital, reimbursement practices are starting to follow patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. And patient outcomes are very closely tied to process improvement, quality improvement measures in the hospital. And when we talk about that in the hospital, we're talking about things to improve patient safety, or decrease the costs associated with each patient's care. These are extremely important things because in this day and age, the US healthcare system is likely the most expensive out there and we have pretty average outcomes. So we obviously know that right away, just by any definition, the quality is pretty mediocre. So my interest you know, in that was actually came from just being an anesthesiologist and working with different surgical subspecialties and seeing how you know, two different surgeons, even in one surgical subspecialty, could have drastically different results, could do the same surgery in different times. And a, and a patient could be in a hospital for two days for one surgeon to, you know, four days for another. Mm -hmm. Each of those days is associated with a certain dollar value to both the patient and the hospital. Right. Um, along those lines, we, obviously, I'm not the only one who realizes there's a huge importance and emphasis on quality improvement. We received mandatory now quality improvement curricula, um, both through our anesthesiology residency program, as well as through our house staff quality and safety committee, which hosts their own quality improvement curriculum for residents and fellow trainees who are interested in picking up or doing some kind of quality improvement project around their institution. Like I said, this has actually become a a requirement by the ACGME, the American Council of Graduate Medical Education. Mm -hmm. And so out of this traditional curriculum, this longitudinal curriculum, my own observations and experiences as a clinical anesthesiologist, and then taking my interest in research and realizing that a lot of the same statistical methods or applied methods of research can be used in quality improvement, um, that's where I realized that I could really, you know, dig out a niche. And I started doing that in residency where I started doing outcomes-based research projects and even small-scale quality improvement projects where you make a small test of change mm -hmm. and you see the results before or after that 
controlling for confounding variables. And I realize there's a huge demand for those kind of projects. Yeah. Apply to research is the way I see it. Yeah. Um, that's what got me into the quality improvement arena. Yeah, interesting. So I, I'd imagine there's probably a lot of people listening to this who think it's, you know, a lot, you haven't, it's not like you're a, you know, a 63 year old who's been doing this for decades. You, you've jumped very quickly from academics, you know, doing a couple fellowships and then throwing yourself into self-employment and consulting and other things very quickly. So maybe you could share a little bit about specifically how that journey happened, transitioning from academics, and then what are some things that somebody who's interested in that and this sort of entrepreneurial professional existence, what, what might somebody want to keep in mind if they, if they want to mirror your progress there? So I'm definitely going to say first things first, regardless of your, you know, your track or your ambitions as a medical student, I will definitely emphasize that it's, it's very important to, you know, clinically position yourself as a doctor first. I mean, you just received, you just spent nowadays about $300,000 to $400,000 in an education that you, so you can clinically practice medicine. Mm-hmm. That is something that's special that no one else can really match with, you know, unless you go to medical school and you do that. It's, and so I still tell everybody that first and foremost that you are a doctor. That you, when you go to medical school, um, you go to a residency training, this is really the only window of time where you can really get the clinical pearls because it gets harder to do, to get those skills. We have continuing medical education where obviously you pay even more money to make sure you maintain the essentials of your board certification. Um, and you will never receive the same clinical training as you do in a residency. So first things first is I, I do think that the first question you need to have is, do you really want to be a clinically practicing doctor? And if so, I do encourage everyone to go through and do the residency program. And it was out of my own residency program where I learned to start balancing, you know, things, even personal lifestyle, going to the gym, making time for yourself, music in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it allows you to sort of figure out what other things can you do to complement your career, your medical career. If you can do it in a residency where you're definitely crunched for time, you have a higher chance for success going out as you know, an attending physician. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who are in residency, who are looking to now plot your career, now the question is, what can I do to really enhance and enrich my career? And that's where I can say that, okay, well, you know, I, I do agree that having, you know, you need to have a clinical balance where you see patients. You need to see patients every week. But I do agree that by you know, it, you need to figure out some kind of independent schedule or something even within the realm of your academic title or even within your group practice that, so that you're not doing the same thing day in, day out. And the topic that I'm approaching here is something called burnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, burnout is a very difficult topic because it's a term that's applied almost overly too much. Every time you see a physician having an issue, you're like, is that physician burned out? No. They're pissed off at the system. They see areas for change. They're not burnt out. But then there are physicians who are actually burnt out. Um, unfortunately, that is an issue. And those are the people who are going in day in, day out. The people who aren't necessarily listened to by their group leaders or by their hospitals. People who really do want to work hard and are just emotionally carried away sometimes by not feeling that they don't have a voice, feeling that they are simply there to push buttons or to push syringes. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about how I felt during my first year as a clinical anesthesiologist. And I feel that a majority of people actually feel the same way. I do think a lot of people come out and they have families already, and obviously their priorities are to provide for their families. So it's a a little bit easier for them to, quote, unquote, keep their heads down, do their work, and just do what it takes to keep a stable practice. But I do think, you know, more and more so, especially with the newer generations in medicine, we're, we're realizing that money is not the only thing. We're looking for room to grow. Yeah. And we're looking for room, we're realizing there's other things that are incorporated into job satisfaction. And money is not even, not even the main thing that contributes to it. So, I mean, there's lots of studies out there now through the AMA, through all these other American Medical Association, even through other organizations, showing that people really are looking for room to grow. They're looking for, you know, a position to be you know, directors, to be in charge for current services, to be in quality improvement committees, to be involved in industry. 
There's even more of a push now for academic universities, academic institutions to partner up with industry so that people are exposed to both. And even in medical school, if you look at Stanford School of Medicine, you've got about 30 to 40% of people, even more, looking for hybrid training after medical school, where they don't go through a traditional residency, hmm. but they go through schools like biodesign, they're you know, just working in startup companies, they're working for big consulting firms. Mm-hmm. So people are realizing that there's a lot of additional skill sets that they can pick up while or even before their uh, residency. So there's a lot out there. Yeah. So for, for your journey, when, when was it, just for, for our listeners so we can get a little clarity on the timeline here, when did you conclude your, your final, I know you did a fellowship or maybe two after residency, when was that? And then sure. what, what did it look like to, you know, you, you mentioned like incorporation, thinking about liability, and then getting a, a couple days a week gig at a hospital plus some consult. There's like, there's a lot of different things that it seems like it required a lot of initiative on your part in order to set in place. Sure. How, did that, how did that transpire? Sure. So I can go over a little bit of the the, um, the, rel- the relevant timeline here. Um, you know, I finished my medical school back in 2011. I did actually a year of research um, within medical school, even before my residency training, to really pick up some of the research skills that I still use to this day. I did my actual residency training in University of Washington, Seattle, from 2011 to 2015. That includes the year of um, internship. For me, it was a mixed medical surgery internship and then three years of anesthesia training. Uh, finished in 2015. I did a year of clinical uh, training as a pediatric anesthesiologist fellow in Boston, followed by about a six months of a research fellowship slash certificate, a little position that I made within the department, sort of as applied research slash innovation fellow within the department where I was doing some more research, but also working on things with innovation, such as a smartphone application or prototype. After that, I came out to my first um, clinical attending job at Cedars at the Red Group practice in 2016. And I did a full, about a full year there. It was only then in middle or end of 2017 where I decided to really fully become more of an independent physician. However, I was independently set up before I started Cedars as an S-Corp. Like I said earlier in the interview, we are almost recommended, if not required, to make what we call a medical corporation here in California, which has both financial uh, benefits as a tax pass-through in many ways, Mm -hmm. as well as a liability protection, knock on wood here, but over and above your current malpractice coverage, if something was to happen, you know, there is protection against your personal assets mm-hmm. since you um, are filed as an independent corporation. Mm-hmm. So it was actually just by making myself an independent corporation where I started learning about the business side. I, when I, someone told me to go and pay $2,000 to incorporate, you know, I was so excited about that. But then when I realized how easy it was to do it yourself, and it probably only took a few hundred dollars, when I did it the second time around for my mobile med spa company, I was like, wow, I kind of saved a lot of money here. Yeah. And everything along the lines, you know, yeah. you know, getting an accountant and being in charge of your own finances, mm-hmm. your own deductible spreadsheets, keeping in charge of your own cases. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I started doing that and that was all born out of my first group practice. Those are good skill sets because when I went and started doing more work with surgery centers and eventually working with the dental anesthesia uh, clinics, dental clinics rather, and other groups in the LA area, and I started, people started doing things with slight nuances, I realized that I needed to keep my current, my spreadsheets, I have a huge love for spreadsheets, by the way, okay. um, and huge uh, organization skills and all the tenants what it took to run my S-Corp and basically take care of all my benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, as an independent physician, we have to provide for all of our own benefits. Mm-hmm. We create our own retirement plan. We pay for our own no practice. So these are some of the things that are actually downside because you do have to cover them yourself. Mm-hmm. The upsides, though, are that a lot of these things are deductible expenses. So although these things in an academic setting may be you know, covered by the group or by the university, as an independent physician, you take care of them yourself, but these are deductible expenses. Right. Um, 
in addition to that, there's things like, you know, obviously your health vision, your um, disability insurance premiums. Yeah. A lot of a lot of expenses go into it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's something that I've encouraged uh, physicians with whom I speak, clients and others. You know, if you're looking at private practice job or something more on the self-employment, self-funding benefits side versus something in an academic center, the benefits in an academic setting are often so valuable uh, that you don't appropriately account for the, you know, the differential. There's obviously this assumption that, well, private practice, you make a lot, academics are taking a haircut on compensation. Not always true necessarily to the extent that you presume once you account for benefits and what you pay on the self-employment side or the private practice side to, to gross that up appropriately. There, it, it does tend to squeeze that margin a little bit. But I'm curious, you know, so you had this job at Cedars and then you eventually, you're, you're right now in this situation where you're a couple days a week at a hospital, ASC, and doing these other things. How did that, how did that transition happen? So um, after, after Cedars, um, I started working with different surgery centers, and the work isn't as regular. And one of the biggest things of being an independent physician, especially an anesthesiologist where you're trying to make your own schedule, is that there's some days where it rains and you've got lots of work, you've got mm -hmm. lots of cases. There's some days where I'm able to pick up two different gigs even within the same day and really almost sort of in a way double up on income. Um, but there's some days where you know, the cases cancel or it's very, very slow day. You're sort of geared up for a full day and you're there in the hospital waiting around on call and you only do a few cases. And so, you know, we realized that, you know, you're just based on your pay structure, you know, we're being paid per case, um, you're being reimbursed, you know, the case that you start having to look for different gigs, more lucrative, lucrative gigs, or being able to, you know, work in different settings where even over the course of a day, you can line up different cases in different locations so that you can make some kind of average income for yourself. But you have to be really on top of it for yourself because, you know, you can go a month where you make only like a fraction of what you would make the next month just because it was a slower month in the winter time or that surgeon is on vacation and they're not scheduling cases. Anesthesia is a very special sort of specialty because you're in a way following the surgeons. Your work is, as a general anesthesiologist is following that of the surgeons. If the surgeon's not operating, you're not there either. And so you have to really diversify your skill set and make yourself available in a lot of different So is your compensation in that context tied to like RVUs per procedure? So what it comes down to, um, I mean, at the end of the day, that is the, the end part of the equation yeah. is, you know, you're building in relative value units. For the listener, for especially procedure-heavy specialties, procedures are given a unit value based on the complexity of the procedure, as well as a unit value for the duration of the procedure and specific modifiers, things that make, for example, the patient more complicated, Procedure more complicated where you have to put in additional lines or monitors or special medications. We learn about RVUs more so in the realm of a being as part of a group practice where you realize, or even in an independent practice where you know that each procedure is associated with a number of units. The group will actually bill out a certain number of you know, units through their billing company and they will compensate you at a set dollar value called a relative value unit. Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, as a practitioner, especially as a, you know, someone just joining a group, you will only know what you're being paid out as in terms of the relative value. That doesn't mean that's not actually the value unit that the group sees, what the group administrators and leaders actually pay themselves um, or what the insurance companies are actually willing to actually pay out for us when you're dealing with more commercial insurances mm -hmm. in the surgical center setting. In a way, there's an extra benefit to that because as a physician, you don't want to be changing or trying to cherry pick your patients based on insurances, right. saying that, oh, my patient has a PPO insurance. I'm going to try to do more of those cases. That's what should not be done. Right. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of that happen in the surgery center world where you know people will try to take the Cadillac insurance patients for themselves, they'll screen them ahead of time, and they'll push for those cases, especially when there's a reason to be them being canceled. So right away, you know, coming into this world, I saw a lot of red flags where people engage in dangerous practices by not blinding themselves to insurance companies. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you realize that there is 
you know, a financial benefit when you have you know, a practice which has lots of Medicare, Medi-Cal patients, this pays a much lower value unit. And then you see groups trying to struggle to put together a practice or work at a couple of hospital settings that have a good payer mix. Mm -hmm. In other words, not just Medicare, Medi-Cal patients who are in dire need of medical services, but also your you know PPO insurance patients that make a group viable to actually help you know bring the hospital to somewhat of a profit. Um, and so that was a lot of what I learned during the second year after Cedars. I didn't learn about any of that during my first group practice because we were paid a set dollar value per hour. Yeah. And then after that, we were paid a set dollar value unit per unit. So each subsequent year, I'm learning a little bit more and more about the billing practices. But to answer your question, Justin, it really comes down to the relative value unit, mm -hmm. what the group is able to bill out at and then collect versus what they're able to actually pay you out at as an anesthesiologist. Uh, I'm curious, in that in this time, did you ever consider working with a locums company or were you always thinking, I want to stand on my own two feet and bargain for myself in looking at a job with a, a community hospital, for example? So it's, um, you know, locums, there's, there's, there's obviously that's a whole different discussion, but I did sign up and I am actually still signed up with locums companies. Okay. Um, locums companies, in other words, for the listener, locums tenants companies um, are companies that are out there to help find people either temporary per diem or even permanent placement or permanent jobs. And they connect them with hospitals, surgery centers, groups um, all over the United States. Now, there's obviously a big push for locals companies. They definitely tend to send out a lot of email, recruiting emails, especially for gigs um, in areas that have, you know, sometimes trouble with getting physicians to come out from there, especially in rural areas and states where there's a general need for physicians. Yeah. Now, um, I have actually, and I still continue to work with locals companies to find the occasional per diem or sporadic job that need coverage at a surgery center. Sometimes I'm, I always keep my eyes out there for a dream permanent placement job that has everything. I can tell you, you know, over the past two years with over a thousand emails, I have still have not found a <laughs> dream permanent placement job. I'm always looking. Yeah. I'm always, you know, comparing the traditional permanent job out there to what I have right now. And it's hard because right now I don't have to take any call and it's hard to sort of leverage what these other groups, the other locums are, groups are actually putting out there. Yeah. But at the same time, they do help find some pretty cool, you know, once in a, you know, a lifetime, once in a blue moon sort of gigs, yeah. even consulting things, even, you know, things where you go and place lines for device companies. I did, did help with finding one of the groups that I signed up with I do OB anesthesia with. So I was able to get a few days a week with that group mm -hmm. through a locals company. Okay. Now the thing is with the locals company is that if you're a, a private practice group or a hospital, you usually pay the locals company a good amount of money for both the hiring as well as successful placement of an anesthesiologist within your group setting. I mean, there's a lot of startup companies rather out there that try to help this process happen in a more timely fashion and at a better cost to the hospital or the surgery centers. Yeah. Uh, but either way, to answer your question, I think there is some benefit to having a locals group, especially if you don't have a permanent job yet or you're trying to create your own schedule and you're looking for something every now and then. Mm -hmm. I can tell you every now and then I get a cool locums you know, uh, email about something in like, you know, Aruba or something like the Virgin <laughs> Islands. And I send those to my colleagues, especially those who are finishing residency who are looking for temporary gigs. Yeah. Um, and who are looking for something fun and non-committal, especially in the beginning. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I'll have to tell my wife to check out Aruba before we set up. <laughs> so with the community hospital role that you're doing now on Monday, Wednesday, that is, it sounds like it's a non-locums thing. Is that right? Um, that's correct. That that was through a group that just kind of found each other through gasworks.com. Okay. That was one of those job finding websites. But yeah. it was something that actually, I believe this group, I reached out to even before I finished my residency and fellowship training. Okay. You know, even then when I came here, I didn't actually, I, I interviewed with them and then I didn't join them right away. And then a year after, I joined them but only on a part-time basis. Mm -hmm. So... It was one of those things where 
it was cool because I didn't feel like I had to commit myself full time to a group. I could work with them part time and then set my schedule for doing some of my other gigs at the yeah. dental anesthesia work on Tuesdays. And again, give myself the flexibility of doing multiple things in a week. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So if there's somebody out there who's an anesthesia resident or maybe a fellow who's thinking, I, I love the way that Alap has created this power of self-determination for himself and he, he has a Monday and a Wednesday thing that's different and a Tuesday thing that's different and Thursday, Friday is something else and really liking the sound of that very diverse you know, lifestyle while still earning a great income. What would you say, how would you encourage someone to you know, take the first step towards being able to have that, that autonomy? Yes. Um, so the, again, the first step is first and foremost is don't sacrifice your clinical training. You know, if you're, if you're a person in medical school or in residency, um, I definitely encourage you to take full hold of your clinical medical education. Um, that being said, um, I encourage those in, in residency programs to seek out a rotation if it's available where you do spend some time working with a group or a private practice mm. um, that is closely associated or friendly, rather, uh, with your residency program. For example, my residency program, I don't think they have this anymore. They had a rotation where they spent uh, residents out to Spokane, which is Eastern Washington, yeah. for a few weeks, and they actually got to work in a private practice, work with the schedulers over there, and they got to sort of see what the workflow is like in a private setting. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I think social media has actually helped quite a bit with encouraging people to connect and network with like-minded people, even before people have finished medical school or residency. Now, Instagram really wasn't that big when I was a resident, let alone existing in medical school. Mm -hmm. But I've learned a lot from Instagram. Um, I've connected with people all over the country, even in my own specialty, where we can like work together, throw around ideas, talk about major hot topics that are you know affecting doctors overall. Hmm. Um, so what I'm getting to is start networking and networking out of your own residency program while you're in residency. And get on Instagram, get on Twitter, because people, even academicians, are starting to communicate much better on that. If, even if you're in research and you don't want to do independent consulting work, but you know you want to do research on the side, you want to do quality criminal work, people are engaging more on Twitter than they are on open access journals, which are journals that allow you immediate access to the cutting edge research as and when it's published. Mm -hmm. People are doing that even a better job of it on Twitter and Instagram. So get on there and start networking with colleagues that are above at or below your rank. And you know, even before your first job, because you may even find your first job on Instagram. I'll be honest with you. Um, there's, there's that sounds little, absolutely crazy to me. That's so that absolutely crazy. But, you know, <laughs> finding people that are, you know, have great practices that are looking to join practices that are, are coming in with the same like mindedness. They're not coming in just to make a dollar. Yeah. You're coming in because they're like, huh, we really like the fact that you're doing this stuff with patient safety. We're looking to work along with, a, you know, partner with people that can really enhance a QI program mm -hmm. or they can do this for us or they can do regional nerve blocks. And so I'm like, huh, you can never really find this on a traditional website. And, you know, since day and age in a group practice, it's, you know, word of mouth is still the best way to find that practice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now in this day and age, people want to know that you're not just someone who's going to be pushing propofol. Yeah. They want to see what helps you distinguish, distinguish yourself, yeah. how you can communicate yourself, not just in a hospital and, you know, the clinical norms, but professionally over social media. So that's the second thing I tell people is just, again, engage and network over social media. The third thing is learn about the business side of medicine. Force yourself to do it. Take a webinar. Talk to people just like yourself, Justin. I mean, like, you know, there's, you know, like, go to the seminars. Um, and I know my, I, I do in full transparency, I work along with a financial advisor, and I have been working with one since um, I even finished residency, and it's been a great experience because it's been a lot of teaching um, from the get-go. I mean, it's about simple personal finances, let alone the finances for running your own independent corporation, let alone running a side business. Um, learn about insurance companies. Learn about the insurance companies in the area where you want to practice. For those who are 
who want to go out and do want to do, do private practice and eventually you know, want to do that, uh, want to work with the group or as their own practitioner, again, learn about um, different billing groups. Um, start talking to them. Um, you don't have to commit to them, but learn about what their um, practices are with pre-authorization. Learn about what the negotiation tactics are how aggressive they are, um, the different kinds of insurance companies, how successful they are, the rates they charge for you know, doing their billing for you, how good and savvy they are with coding, and not just current coding practices, but anticipated coding practices as medicine and telemedicine continue to evolve. These are all very high yield things um, that you know, people don't really even think about even several years into practice. But if you start thinking about that, you'll start. You'll have a better way of communicating with your actual billing group and your actual group once you get on to practice. Start reading. Just start getting the get on the internet. And start reading about these things and talk to people that are already established out there. Um, but it has to be done hand in hand with your clinical training. You should never sacrifice, you know, going to the hospital or you know trying to, you know, take extra time off just to do that. It has to be done hand in hand. And that's tricky because we have a lot of things to balance. If you can balance that in residency, that is a surefire way of succeeding with a good balance when you're done with your training. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, if somebody says, I think that sounds great. I'd love to learn more about these different things, but I don't even know where to begin. Do you have any sources that you might recommend out there on the interwebs that, that we could throw in the show notes here? Sure. I mean, I always love to make myself available as a resource if someone who's not through that. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot, um, a lot of the information can is just really by sort of asking people within your own specialty, who are already out there, who are established. Um, I think talking to your residency program director, who usually has knows about you the best and knows about your the way you learn the best, they'd be the, a good resource for you because they can connect with you people even within your academic institution that you can talk to. Um, but really going out there, um, looking uh, uh, for, um, you, can do, you can do courses, just certain coursework, uh, sorry. So for example, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, they have an entire practice management uh, consortium, um, a sub-society that meets annually. Um, I encourage people to be you know, involved in things like that. People will also learn about some of these things through some of their political action committees. And each uh, specialty has that associated with that, or your state medical societies. And those are good ways to network with people in your specialty who are looking out for the greater good of their specialty. And obviously, a lot of that deals with the business side of medicine or the business side of that specific specialty. So those are good initial resources to look out to. Really, you want to find someone um, eventually who's like a good mentor. Um, it's very hard to find a good mentor because really everyone, as you'll realize, is looking up for themselves. They're not going to tell you every single one of their billing practices because in a way it's always proprietary. We'll have to make the income somehow. But these are the people that start talking to and they'll start leading you the right way. And just keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, digest as much as possible. Realize that no matter what, you're going to make a few mistakes and blunders. It's not going to be perfect off the get-go. And realizing that regardless of any of the resources that I mentioned to you, the biggest person you're going to learn from is yourself, right? You have to go through the experience. You have to try. You have to fail um, in order to learn what it takes. Okay, great. Great. So I know um, you, you know, you talked about social media and, and the importance of networking. And I would imagine for the self-employed physician, the, the value of having your own brand can be really yeah. important. And I know you've got alopshamd.com, the domain that you've got all of your different sort of business ventures there. You've got LinkedIn, you've got Instagram, you got, you're probably on Twitter, I'd imagine, and all these other things. Describe kind of the importance of that for the self-employed physician and any tips or tricks you might have learned or landmines to not step on that would be helpful to know for our listeners, but also for me. <laughs> you know, so that's something that um, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on. I think I'm still learning the game. I um, came to Instagram. Um, I had a personal account that I created a few years ago. Um, but my physician account um, was uh, and really everything that came with social media thereafter was really over the past year. Um, again, it was something that I didn't realize that I could bridge medicine. Um, 
But uh, in terms of building a brand, um, I realized that obviously social media is definitely the way to do that. So for me, you know, what really got me into social media, I guess the way I said it is that, you know, you definitely want to have an account. You want to figure out who your targeted followers are, who your targeted audience is. But then for me specifically, you know, it was like, what is my major pain point? And what is something that's unique to all the different things that I'm doing that I can tie together? And that is the point that I want to sell. All these different things, the different gigs, um, writing things that I'm doing are all secondary to the main message that I'm trying to convey across. And what the main message is, is being independent, almost in a way, almost like being a rebel to the system, you know? Uh, So building a brand sort of came out of, you know, my pain points, like what was really the main thing that motivated me to go away from a traditional path in medicine, private practice, or an academic setting. So uh, then on Instagram, really, I, I don't have much experience with Twitter. I'm just starting to use Twitter. I don't have, you know, don't have much of a crowd there. But I really think the biggest thing for um, being successful with you know, branding yourself is, again, the pain point and figuring out how to connect with your targeted followers over Instagram such that they can learn about and really feel your pain point. Um, so you know, I, I like social media uh, because it does allow you to brand yourself um, in different ways. For me, number one, it allows me to ter- uh, focus on medical education it allows me to focus on residents that are going through the process and realizing and, and, and that there are so many people and so much angst out there for even completing residency and people have so many questions out there. And so I have a column that just serves to motiv- uh, motivate uh, uh, residents and medical students and talk about you know, some of the issues about sort of being held down by a traditional um, system. So approaching the idea of burnout and the loss of individuality in medicine. And the second thing is innovation. Um, I think every physician should be or should be involved with innovation. It doesn't mean you have to come up with some crazy medical device. It just means that you have to be um, uh, at least apprised of, you know, good evidence-based techniques, something that can improve something in your community hospital, whether it's, you know, something to decrease uh, incidence of an infection, to decrease your patient's length of stay. And so using social media to talk about those things and show those things um, and engage discussion, whether it be over your Instagram feed or your story, or whether it be even over a Twitter post. And then the third thing is really to show yourself as a doctor. At the end of the day, people are looking up to you. At the end of the day, people still have a lot of respect for medicine, which is great because it's you know medicine's gone through a lot of rough patches in this country, and so people want to see that you continue to provide medical services, that you you work with patients, that you're a compassionate individual, and so you want to be able to first of all, more importantly, you want to be able to show that by being genuine. Mm-hmm. You want to do that in your everyday practices. Um, you don't want to be artificial. You don't want to come across as being artificial on social media. And I think a lot of people, I know Instagram is notorious for people like trying to go out there and like look great. And that's what gets the most likes and most interaction. And so my biggest tip for you is sort of to figure out how you can use some of these things on social media, some of these more superficial qualities and bridge them with the organic, genuine things that you're doing, your own pain points. Yeah. Um, yeah and then display it on social media in a way that allows you to tell your story uh, without being too aggressive or you know, obviously too showy or obviously violating anything that shouldn't be violated on social media. Right. And so that's the fine line that um, everyone has, should have to take. I take that approach, um, sort of a three-tiered approach because I've got three columns on Instagram and I've really used Instagram and used that medium as a way of showcasing everything that I've been trying to do, but everyone should have, and does have a different way of showcasing their talents mm-hmm. and their pain points on social media. I'm just showcasing one way of doing it, yeah. 
but you know, coming in with an organized approach, be taking care of, if you're doing, do, gonna do a lot of social media posts, try to create your content ahead of time and try to time it. Yeah. Um, and you know, always just, you know, keep thinking of things fresh. I always have like a memo pad, whether it be an audio thing on my phone, a memo pad near the shower or near the bed where I can you know, write down my ideas very quickly. Yeah. Um, and then either convert them to an article, to a post, um, talk to my SEO company, search engine optimization company, or my photographer about putting together a photo shoot related to that cause together, and then publicizing it on the web, whether it be a post, whether it be a writing gig, whether it be a blog post on my own website. Um, so those are the things that I think are important when it comes to branding yourself. Um, figuring out your social media algorithm, having a website, um, as a landing page for any of your social media um, outlets um, and then planning out all your social media posts ahead of time such that you're not like struggling or desperate to try to put to, a post together. Um, you know, so those are some of the things. Again, I'm learning a lot of this myself currently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as a physician, you know, I think, you know, taking a good simple approach like the one that I've talked about is a good way to st getting started off. Um, realizing that everyone's got their own individual flavor. You have to figure out what it is for yourself and then you have to put that in the spotlight. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So. Uh, cool, so I wanna ask you one last question, Alap, and I sure. very much appreciate your time today. Um, yeah, so first. as a physician and an entrepreneur, your, your path has been very demanding, requiring a lot of sacrifice. So I'd love to hear a brief story or anecdote reflecting on a proud moment of yours when you thought, all the time that I put in, all the long hours and late nights and call shifts, it's all worthwhile because of today's work. Sure. Um, so let's see. Okay, I can think of, all right. So my experience last year, last May, um, when I was at one of these community hospitals, um, you know, like I said, one of my biggest issues is that I'm trying to um, improve the quality of care that is delivered in non-hospital type settings. Um, and basically last year, you know, I had a, a case where I was um, doing or providing anesthesia for a C-section. Um, again, a C-section is indicated for laboring females about to have a baby who have some kind of contraindication or have a problem with the normal uh, vaginal delivery of their baby. And so this patient is brought um, urgently to the operating room, um, you know, given whatever kind of anesthesia is needed urgently to make them comfortable so that they can deliver the baby without harm to the baby or the mom. And so this is happening pretty urgently because there's a problem with the uh, laboring mom's um, uterus. Um, so a C-section was done and um, when the baby came out, the baby's heart was not beating and the baby was blue and was not breathing. Um, and Although this is not uncommon within the first couple of seconds, the baby was not making any moments of breath and their heart had completely stopped. And this is really trying because in this specific community hospital, there's no pediatric ICU, mm. there was no in-house pediatrician even. And so everyone was panicking. Um, I'm trained in pediatric anesthesiology. Um, so as soon as the baby was born, I called my colleagues in to come take care of the mom, and I went to take care of the baby with the uh, uh, rest of the other ICU team, and everyone else would rush into the operating room. But it was really, really scary because, you know, I was dealing with, you know, babies whose heart wasn't beating. Um, we started doing CPR, and it was... I just remember sort of all everything that I kind of learned kind of just felt like it snapped into action, you know, dealing with the airway, putting in you know, urgent lines and umbilical vein line, um, giving medications um, through the line to get the heart beating, but something that's appropriate for the baby's size and you know age, yeah. of being a few, you know less than thirty minutes old, um, and just just dealing with all that, and I remember just you know it just sort of seemed like it was taking all day, and I remember almost giving up and at about the 10 minute mark we heard like the baby start to cry and the baby actually perked up um after we gave that last dose of epinephrine i just remember because you know i thought the baby was for sure done wow and i just sort of remember like that happening um it, it was just crazy 
um, it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking about it. And I mean, fortunately, I mean, I mean, the baby did fine afterwards. They went to the ICU in another hospital. And I remember the mom texting me on Mother's Day um, when she left the hospital with her kid. Um, and she was really, really thankful. Wow. Um, Wow. And I mean, it just made me feel that, you know, I, th I think those moments are lost on us in medicine. Yeah. And um, those are hard to come by because you don't get to see, like, you know, we, we, we give medications. Um, we do the same thing day in, day out. We drop our patient off and recover. And we don't really get to see how they do afterwards. Yeah. In this case, like, the more you involve yourself, you actually get to see something all the way through completion. And you get to see the results of your hard work yeah. and you get to sort of feel like you actually did your job in helping save someone's life. Yeah. And that, that was a very special moment to me, wow. special yeah. moment for me. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story. And uh, thank you very much, Dr. Alap Shah for your time today. And thank you for joining us on the anesthesia success podcast. Uh, thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiosuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.